This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work, brought to you by Herman Miller. Hey, listeners, I'm Ryan Anderson, head of global research and insights at Herman Miller and your host for the Looking Forward podcast. Today, we're exploring how we can begin to rethink the future concept of workplace with one of the most experienced and insightful leaders that I know in the industry, Adrian Rowe, head of workplace strategy at Raytheon Technologies. Take a listen to how her thinking about the future workplace has evolved and how those ideas might benefit your organization as well. Adrian, thank you for joining the Looking Forward podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This is always fun. Well, I know we've known each other for several years, and I have a ton of respect for you and your thoughts on all things workplace, but maybe we should just start with uh, letting our listeners get to know you a little bit. Maybe you can share a little bit about you and what you do. Sure. Uh, Currently, I um, head up workplace strategy at Raytheon Technologies. It's a new role for me. Prior to that, I was with Merck in a similar role, and prior to that, Fidelity Investments. But the bulk of my career, I spent at Walt Disney World in Orlando, doing a whole host of different things. Well, I'm sure that experience at Walt Disney World gave you a different perspective on the people you're serving and experience all together. And it seems like workplace experience is more of a topic now than it's been uh, as, as far as I can ever remember. So that's a pretty cool tie. I'm curious if you're at a cocktail party and someone says, so workplace strategy, uh, what does that entail? What is it you're trying to accomplish? Can you unpack that a little bit for us? I do get this question quite a bit, and it's a tough one to answer other than I go to a lot of meetings on Zoom. <laughs> It's not a great descriptor. Um, workplace is ultimately aimed at providing settings that enable people to do their best work. And I say those words carefully because I think our definition of place is changing. So um, we need to think about workplace in broader terms these days. Um, and And the way I approach it is, from a number of angles, definitely a research-oriented perspective. Metrics are huge. The design element, and you referenced the user experience, starting with the employee experience, that's everything. And then there's a lot of consultation and change management with not only the users, but the leaders who manage those users and helping them along the journey. Yeah, so where would this fall in most organizations? I was just having this conversation yesterday, and I've seen it everywhere. Uh, I've seen it in procurement. I've seen it in finance. I've seen it in um, HR. In my current organization, we sit in enterprise services, which seems like a pretty good place to be. But I think that's emblematic of the general broadness or the breadth of workplace that we really could fit in all of these different zones. Yeah, well, given how much functions like IT and HR and others impact workplace and workplace experience, I would imagine there's a high degree of collaboration between anybody in a workplace strategy roles and several of these other functions. What does that look like? We really can't do our job without them. At this point, we're so tightly integrated with uh, technology, for example, as we, right on the heels of finishing our workplace design guide, you know, what spaces do we create? What goes into those spaces? We launched our digital technology analog to those guidelines. So what goes in the space? How do you support it? What does the user experience look like? And from an HR perspective, it's really fundamental because we're talking about employee experience and you can't divide people into disciplines, right? You have to deal with the whole person. So 
HR really helps us to do that in the context of what the organization is trying to achieve by way of culture and how we want to move forward as an enterprise. Well, we've certainly observed in this last six months to a year, a whole host of people outside of the traditional realm of workplace getting interested in it. And you referenced having a workplace design guide. I'm guessing that some of our listeners might not actually know what a workplace design guide is. Can you tell us a little bit more about what something like that might be and whether or not most organizations would have one? Sure. Our workplace design guide first starts by laying out our overall workplace philosophy. And our sort of North Star is an activity-based work environment. Um, And then the intent of the document is really for practitioners, both within the company and folks that we bring in, architects and such, to acquaint them with what is the kit of parts? How do you build a workspace at Raytheon Technologies? What goes in it? Um, We also have a big section on planning metrics. So what are the planning assumptions that go into that? How many of each thing do you need in each type of space? As a general guide, and we follow the 80-20 rule. And we're getting more into the detail uh, in our next iteration. We're already on our third iteration, and it will include guidance on environmental graphics so that there is uh, an interiors treatment to the branding. We're not just sort of throwing the logo on a wall, um, but we're really thinking intentionally about how that displays and and impacts the experience. So it's really meant to be a playbook for designers and uh, not just for the brand new fit out, but also for those projects where we only have a little money and can make a little change. So what do we go after first and how do we do that? Yeah, you mentioned activity-based working. Um, These strategies, unlike what we've seen often in the U.S. at least, where each person has historically been assigned one place where they're expected to do all of their work activities, these strategies emphasize usually a variety of spaces that are shared among a larger population, almost like the way we operate within a house, um, to be able to cover off on a broader range of activities. It's still fairly new to a lot of organizations. I'm curious if you have background in in ABW before and what kind of challenges you've sensed that it's had um, being adopted with the organizations you've been with. Well, the good news is ABW has been around a long time. It's not a recent invention and it's been tried and tested. So that's the, the, the foundation that we're building on. The fundamental challenge is always getting people to let go of the notion of mine of having a, a, a space with boundaries around it that's theirs only. And there's really good reason to do it. The individual cellular space is incredibly wasteful. And you know the pain point ends up being there's not enough places to go and meet in groups of three or four. And we have no place to do a loud brainstorming session because all this space is locked up in these little boxes that nobody sits in. So, and particularly in the U.S., I think, because of just the way we are, it's a big mind shift for folks to get over that notion of I've earned it. It's mine. My name is on it. I do what I want in there to I'm part of a community and I have the run of the floor, but it also means I'm responsible to all these other people in terms of how I use and treat the space. That's an excellent way of unpacking it. And my mind immediately goes to a question we've been asking, although I don't know that we've got the answers to it yet, which is what does a year or a year and a half of being in quarantine and exclusively working from home for many people, how has it changed their perception of whether or not they need an individually owned desk uh, at a corporate office space somewhere? Or in fact, has the lack of community helped to 
turn the corner on their desire to have more participation in a shared environment. I don't know that I've seen a clear pattern yet, but I'm curious what your your speculation might be. I've actually been right in the middle of this. And what I can tell you is that many hearts and minds have been changed and others are still firmly committed to the way things were and are going to need a little more time. On the whole, though, folks who maybe did not have the benefit of the flexibility before have really come to appreciate what that can do for them personally. Um, how having the ability to, to go chase the natural light wherever it's falling in your house, to have a, you know, or, or save your quiet work for or the quiet room. Um, you know, I think that's really opened some eyes. On the flip side, I think it's also sort of removed everybody from the sense of identity that comes with place. So we're all sort of operating a little bit like freelancers right now, you know, where we're doing work for an enterprise, but, you know, maybe we're not as emotionally connected to it as we were before. And I think this is what's behind the, what they're calling the great resignation, you know, where people are standing back, taking a very objective look at their jobs because they have that distance now and they're making decisions about where to go. So that I think is going to be one of our big challenges is how do we continue to create culture and a sense of place when we don't always have the place. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that our concept of place is changing. Tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing there. Absolutely. It's an ecosystem, I think, these days. It's you know, it's wherever work can happen. And as workplace professionals, well, actually, I think we, we need to have a broader definition, not just of place, but also of work. So instead of thinking about it in terms of the office where I do tasks, it's all the places where I'm a whole human. That's a much different proposition. You know, so when I'm at the office, how am I being cared for? And how am I connecting with other people? Same with when I'm not in the office. And what are the elements that I need in order to thrive um, in all the elements, not just the raw productivity, making widgets, but also building connections, growing professionally, um, all the good stuff. Um, so I think that's our task, which is a little daunting, but ultimately much more exciting than just thinking about making widgets in offices. <laughs> well, I, I can imagine it would be daunting, particularly if if uh, for either facilities managers or workplace strategists, they have at times reported into corporate real estate. In fact, I think a majority might still, if their view of their domain, so to speak, is corporate office portfolio, what you just described certainly is going to need to stretch um, everyone's idea of how work might be supported beyond a traditional long-term lease in a corporate office building. It's true. The, the role of the FM is changing. It has been for a while, but now I think it's really you know, coming to a head where they're not managing walls and desks anymore. They're managing activity and experience. And that's a whole different perspective. So I think that element of our world has uh, a lot of change ahead of it as we adapt to these new environments. Yeah, huge amount. I'm curious, um, given that so much of your role is around change management within your organization, thinking about workplace. Are you seeing the profession of workplace strategy, facilities, corporate real estate undergoing its own change management? And is there anyone who's helping to guide this or is a bit of a free for all in terms of 
upskilling and adapting to the next era of work? So I'll go, I'll stop short of calling it a free for all. I'll maybe say it that we're all learning together. And I think anybody who professes to be an expert on how things are going to play out once we're bought, the pandemic's behind us um, may not have a grasp on what's really happening. None of us really knows what life is going to be like. So we're all learning together. There's lots and lots of conversation among peers about what are you doing? What's working for you? What are your pain points? Um, how much are you investing now versus later? Have you changed your policies? How do you distribute mail when people are remote and hybrid? All those types of topics. So there's just a lot of conversation. So the great news is I think the workplace world is more connected than we have been before. Um, the challenge is we all have the same things to learn together. Yeah, well, given that ambiguity, this might be a tough question. But if you had to imagine the role, your role or your, the role of peers several years out, what kind of changes can you imagine um, may have taken place? Like how will the job be different maybe on more of a day-to-day basis in the future than what it's been in the past? Yeah. So I think some organizations have already started thinking this way, um, you know, sort of the head of dynamic work roles and head of you know employee experience. That's where I think this is ultimately going rather than head of workplace. So I, I do think that we're going to need to broaden our scope and be thinking about that full experience. I also think there are a lot of underserved employee populations that the workplace community needs to start paying attention to. Um, we've been very office focused, but there's a whole lot of workers who do their work in labs, on shop floors, in retail environments, in healthcare, where they're sharing space with their, their own consumers. So uh, I think that's sort of the next frontier in workplace is how do we, how do we create great work experience for those populations? So that broadening of kind of perspective resonates with me. When when we think about our research um, and how we do it over the years, many people assume that we're off focused on researching like an uh, edge of a table or <laughs> the back of a chair, which we do. But for us, it's always people like who are we serving? What are they trying to do? And then the place considerations come last because so often people don't do an activity in a particular location. So your reference to activities and experiences made me smile. Speaking of experiences, I would be remiss if I didn't take a little bit of time to dive on a couple of things that we have talked about in the past, uh, about which I think your perspectives have really changed my thinking. You mentioned um, chasing natural light in your home. Um, I remember you once saying in a conversation that the office or the workplace needs to democratize our lumens. Um, Maybe I'm misquoting you there, but tell me a little bit about your thinking about natural light as it relates to employee experience. I think if you do nothing else in a work environment, get out of the way of the sun. That's the first and foremost thing because access to natural light just has such a fundamental impact on the human experience. And we don't even fully understand it yet. We just know that when we get sun, we feel good. When we don't, we don't feel quite as good. So um, I think that's part of our our task and one of the failings of the traditional work environment is that it made access. It was photons, not lumens, but access oh, to thank photons. You. photons. <laughs> um, it was the exclusive province of, of the upper echelon, right? Like you had to earn it and you shouldn't have to. Sunlight should be something that everybody in every job gets every day. It's that basic. It's food, water, air, sunlight. 
Yeah, if we borrow a little bit from the world of evidence-based design in healthcare, there's studies, as I'm sure you know, dating back years indicating that patients who have the ability to uh, monitor their own amount of medication tend to medicate less when they have access to a lot of natural light, which is a fascinating correlation. Um, and there's so many things, to your point about those traditional private offices giving natural light to executives. There's so many things that it feels like are being democratized these days, because I would argue that working from home and flexible working was also probably only um, you know, applicable to higher levels of the organization for many years. And that just broader range of place is probably happening, thankfully, for millions of other people now across the world. You know, what's interesting is I'm kind of seeing a little bit of the reverse where our most senior leaders are so, yeah, they're very anxious to get back into the office. And I think there's a disconnect between their perception of how others feel about coming back into the office versus having more flexibility. Um, there's just there's definitely a difference in the senior leader population, not just within my organization, but elsewhere where they, I think, have relied more on or thrive more in that in-person interaction environment due, due to the nature of their work, I think. Um, that said, there is there are populations who have never had access to the flexibility, and I think this has been a game changer for them. And the one that I think of um, often is the administrative assistance. You know, for the longest time, it was, this is where you sit, you are the gatekeeper, we need you here in case I need anything. And that whole population, which is vast majority women, many of whom are caregivers and, you know, really value flexibility more than anyone, they suddenly have this flexibility, which I just think is fascinating. And um, I am looking forward to talking with that group to understand how this has changed their work experience and how their tasks have changed since they've been working from home versus in the office. Yeah. And the relationships between them and those that they serve, in particular, if those that they serve may find themselves more uh, consistently in the office. Uh, we'll, it'd be interesting to see if, in fact, that level of flexibility is maintained or whether or not there's a sense of obligation that if the boss is in the office, um, others might need to be so as well. I think there's some of that. I do believe, though, that if we in workplace and facilities do our job right in supporting the experience, a lot of those ancillary tasks that admins were doing might not fall on their shoulders anymore. If you have a great community manager and a floor captain taking care of those things, the visitors, the food orders, all that stuff, then the admin can focus on really organizing the work and keeping the executive on track, which is ultimately their job. Yeah. Tell us what a community manager is, as you just referenced it. Well, we're still defining it, but a community manager is a person who really is responsible for the smooth operation of the building and the experience of the users. So that individual, in addition to managing visitors and deliveries and food and ensuring that things work, they're also keeping an eye on what spaces are being utilized, if any neighborhood is oversubscribed, if we need to balance out the demand at all. Um, and we're envisioning that that person would be supported by what we're calling neighborhood captains who sort of play that role for a, a smaller perimeter and own their group space. And that network as a whole is what 
keeps the, the operation running. So more to come on that. I'm really excited about the idea. I think it's been a long time coming and definitely needed in an environment where there's so much dynamic activity. So within that larger framework of activity-based working, will certain groups have ownership over certain neighborhoods? Are you taking a neighborhood-based approach? We are taking a neighborhood-based approach, but it's a neighborhood. It's not a gated community. So the boundaries are flexible and anybody can visit any neighborhood. Um, There's no one at the gate looking for your ID. And uh, we think that's important for many reasons, not the least of which is we absolutely need for our groups to be able to flex as their head counts and their presence ebbs and flows. Um, We don't want to be locked in. I mean, every boundary you put in a space is a constraint, right? That ultimately kills your efficiency. Now I'm getting all operations nerdy, but the more um, that the fewer boundaries and constraints you have, the more efficiently you can use your space. So that's, that's the approach we're taking. Well, that ability to traverse from very human centered experience to operational efficiencies is for me, one of the things that's always kind of amazed me about people who do roles like yours really well. Um, and we got another gem of a quote in that it's not a gated community. I know whenever I talk to you, I'm going to walk away with at least a couple of very repeatable things. By the way, Herm Miller has also adopted a neighborhood-based planning approach for a variety of reasons, but one of which is in looking at those places that reopened their offices soonest but allowed employees to have more flexibility, not surprisingly, the primary driver of when people might want to come in was largely about who they might be able to connect with. And so when it was completely shared, uh, it lacked a certain degree of predictability that if somebody on my team is there, I might not even be able to see them. It's kind of like going to a party. You go to the party to meet new people, but there's no way you're going to go alone. <laughs> like you, you need that. Exactly. With you. Um, and the other thing that you said that really catches my ear is, I think it's probably a really good thing when executive leaders want to spend more time in the office because their presence, if they make themselves available, can be a great draw too. Now, that's different than mandating, hey, I'm back, you need to be back. But if if the time spent can be less structured, more open, more available, more coffee, I think that's one of the things that'll assure that offices continue to thrive or maybe even do better than they have in the past because it feels like you have access to people that would be you know, unlikely for many people to have a Zoom call with. At least, and definitely not an informal conversation. I think a lot of our leaders are feeling that and they're missing, you know, they recognize their role in energizing a team and getting into the organization and, you know, helping make things happen and connect people and feeling the lack of that since they've been remote. So I I think that's part of what's driving them to really want to get back in to do more of what they do, you know, which is lead. All right, moving on to another topic uh, about which I greatly value your opinions. Uh, As I mentioned, we've known each other for years, but I remember seeing a piece that you wrote for LinkedIn uh, on generations in the workplace that I read more than once before reaching out to you and saying, Adrian, this is really good. And I still reference it. I, I don't think we hear generations in the workplace perhaps talked about as much as we did a few years ago, but I noticed that a member of my team actually posted your article on LinkedIn just a few weeks ago, because once again, it had come up. Tell us a little bit. I know we could go on like a whole episode on just this, but tell us a little bit about why you wrote that piece and maybe some of the concerns around generations in the workplace as a framework for workplace strategy. I really started thinking about this when the whole OK Boomer thing was happening. It was right before the pandemic in our, you know, simpler, more innocent days. But there was this whole, you know, millennials versus boomers. And of course, they always forget us in Gen X, but 
whatever. Um, and I started thinking, you know, what's, what is really behind this? And, and it, you know, generational theory basically says that based on the year when you were born, you're going to have certain behavioral and personality characteristics. Um, and I think what happens is that gets transposed with life stage. And there are definitely differences by life stage. You know, if I have a young family, I'm going to have much different priorities, different needs, attitudes than if I'm an empty nester. It doesn't have so much have to do with the year you were born. So that's sort of a backwards looking bucketization of people um, that, you know, is kind of fun to talk about and, you know, creates these interesting categories. But ultimately, when you dig into the data, there's no predictive validity to the construct at all. It, you can't predict anything by generation. I mean, there's a couple of rare exceptions. So if there was a, a, a traumatic economic event while you were growing up in your formative years, you're going to behave differently. And so like the Great Depression, you know, we've all seen grandparents behaving in a very particular way because they lived through that. And oddly, the gas crisis of the 70s impacted people who were getting their license right around that time and how they shop for cars. So, but as, apart from that, there's really not anything. Now there are changes that happen over time, but it's the, the, the problem was when you try to divide it by, okay, before 1981, you're this and after you're that, that just simply isn't true. Um, so, and I, and I think it's, can be divisive. I mean, it can be fun to talk about, but part of why I was interested in getting into it is that um, it feels divisive and, has the potential to be kind of ageist and non-inclusive. Well, for the record, I completely concur with what you just said. I also know you didn't mention earlier that you have a research background and you've taken a rigorous look at this. I'm hoping that um, generational references don't suddenly make a reoccurrence um, in the popular media about workplace decisions, because if, in fact, life stage or shared experiences is the bigger um, set of impacts, there's no doubt that we've all had this crazy set of shared experiences over the last couple of years. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think uh, it's hard to let go of your the contracts you've relied upon for years. Um, another one that kind of broke my heart a little when I found out it wasn't valid is the MBTI. So Myers-Briggs, no predictability. It's basically astrology. You know, it's a self-reinforcing, hey, I belong to this group. Isn't that fun? So great for a BuzzFeed quiz, but not so much for planning people's experiences. Yeah. Yeah. There's a strong tie because I have a, uh, in, in earlier part of my career, I have a marketing background. There's a strong tie to some consumer purchasing behaviors and what is known as tribal marketing, meaning sometimes we choose our products based on what we think it says about us, not based on our actual needs. And so I totally see the correlation. All right. A couple of um, quick questions as we move towards a close. For you, what are like the burning questions on your mind that you want to really check out, think about as it relates to workplace in the coming years? I think the big questions are how do we create Oh, so back, as backdrop, we have had the gift of a completely equitable virtual experience in the past year and a half. Everybody has the same real estate on the screen. And once a percentage of our group is back in the office, that's going to change. So the challenge is how do we keep that equitable experience going and keep people included when not everybody's in the same place? So that's, that's a big one. Um, the technology piece of it, how do we uh, support those experiences with the right technology. I don't think our current conference room setups are going to do it. Um, and then 
finally, leaders, I think, have a totally new challenge now. I mean, it was in the old days, you could take presence for granted. And all of those interactions that organically happened just happened. And now you have to choreograph that. You have to schedule things and be intentional about when people are where. And that's hard, especially when we're, you know, we're flouting um, flexibility and we've got, you know, all of this. How do you balance that with, I really need my team all together on this one day. So I think that's a big challenge for leadership and I'm eager to see how we address that. Yeah, that desire for balance is so right on. And I don't think it's being helped by the headline writers of the world who want this to be a very, very kind of binary, either the office is dead or everybody needs to work remote or remote isn't sustainable. But in fact, seeking out some equilibrium and balance that's equitable and positive for all seems uh, very heady and complex, but in fact is probably the, you know, the ultimate goal um, that we're seeing as well. So last question would be, um, if you had a friend uh, and she was CEO of a company or or maybe it's someone who's thinking about workplace in new ways and they said, so do we need workplace strategy? Like what, what advice would you give them if this is a brand new function? How should an organization at this point in time, given where we are, begin to approach this? The first thing I would advise them to do is to really understand their current state. So understand where your people's heads are at get some good survey tools to use, understand your portfolio and maybe how your assets were performing prior to COVID. I bet there was opportunity there and understand what types of work need to happen in the future. And then align that against what you have in your portfolio. If there's a mismatch, you need workplace. Well, I can't thank you enough. I've, uh, I've, I'm very appreciative of all the ways that you've impacted our thinking at Herm Miller over the years, and I'm thankful that you've spent time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. 